are uh, still uh, moving into Romans 13 in our section here of Romans that we're in Romans 12 through 15. And this section uh, we have termed a transformed relationships. And we look at the fact that our relationships here on this earth and their transformation grows out of our most fundamental and most important relationship, that being with God, and it being transformed first and constantly being reminded in our relationships with other people and with institutions like with the state. We're constantly reminded of our need to be living as a, as on the altar, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, not being conformed to the way the world does things, but the way that God wants us to live. And so let's remind ourselves of those foundational verses for this section of Scripture, of Romans 12, 1 through 2, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. And so what we're doing here this morning is hopefully your mind is being renewed specifically in the area of how God wants us to relate to government, to the institution and the authority that he's given to the state. And therefore, you will know what is God's will, what is good and acceptable and perfect for you to do in living a transformed relationship with that institution and live transformed rather than just being conformed to the way that the world goes about doing things. In the last 12 months has been uh, full of political banter in the United States. I don't, does anybody recall an election we had last November? It was a little interesting. It was a little heated. You know, we saw it in, in many ways as a reaction to what had been building over the previous eight years. Uh, there were some of us that, that wondered if any part of the created order, such as gender or marriage, was not going to come under attack and that, and be that people would be expected to to sign on to um, a, a different definition of those things wholeheartedly, and the American people uh, seemed to respond to that and came out in droves in what was considered insignificant flyover country and spoke their, with their votes, and and not one of us since then has probably. Uh, all of us has probably experienced waking up on uh, some morning since then and learning of some presidential tweet that went out later in the night and kind of cringed and thought, okay, what now? Where are we now? Well, understand that the church in Rome was, we got nothing on them, okay? They were under the rule of Emperor Claudius, who was the first emperor that really started putting pressure on the Jews in Rome and on the Christians as well. Well, he married a woman named Agrippina. um, And uh, she became Empress Agrippina. I think she was his fourth wife. And she had a son named Nero. And Agrippina convinced Claudius to adopt Nero as his son and to put him next in line for uh, for the emperorship in front of his biological son to, to take his adopted son and say he will be the next emperor of the Roman Empire. 
and conveniently he was then poisoned, which most historians agree that uh, he was poisoned by uh, order of his new wife, Agrippina. So, you know, make a Hallmark Valentine's special uh, out of that relationship there. Uh, talking about focus on the family, I think they needed a little bit of focus on the Roman imperial family back then. Yet into this context, we have written in the book of Romans in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and we're looking at 1 through 7 this morning, let every person be subject to their governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And he goes on to say, For rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So last week we, we were talking about how God, a transformed relationship with God should transform our relationship with even those that we consider our enemies or people that have made themselves enemies of us, people that it, it seems like they have it in for us. And we talked about the fact that, that vengeance belongs to God and, and was quoted from Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will repay. And here we see it flows very naturally into this discussion of the state and of government as God's institution for carrying out his vengeance, being his avenger here on earth. And that he will have vengeance on them if they do not carry that out correctly. We also looked last week at the end of chapter 12 about how it was really kind of summed up with this idea of do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And here it flows very naturally into the idea that here on earth, God's institution for dealing with evil is the institution of government or the state. And one thing that we'll ask this morning is what happens when the state is calling good evil and evil good? What do we do then? But, but understand that these words are written in terms of kind of this is how it was created to be from the beginning. And so we carry on in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So we're looking this morning at, at how we as believers, living in a transformed relationship with God, we should be transformed into super citizens. We should be transformed into super citizens. You know, what will be played out in these verses, and what I think is a key idea in this, is that 
we should be transformed into super citizens, not solely because as, as anybody living under the government system is concerned about consequence, is concerned about penalties, is concerned about fines and being thrown into prison. That should, it shouldn't just be that that causes us to be super citizens, but we're also driven by conscience. We're also driven by the fact that we should be living a relationship with God in which we've presented ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. And we've said, Lord, all areas of my life, I offer to be directed by you. And that should make us super citizens. So our main idea I want to get across to you this morning is as citizens of heaven, Christians should be the best citizens on earth. As citizens of heaven, Christians should be the best citizens on earth. We're told in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Colossians 1, we have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and, and, and been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son. But yet we all live under a government. We live under a state. And we should be the best citizens on earth because, as I've mentioned, and you see there in verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We should carry with us an inner drive to be subjected to government as a transformed relationship because of our transformed relationship with the Lord. So firstly, we should be the best citizens on earth, and this means that you should submit to the authority God gives the state. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now understand something first about this text. There is, could have, there is a term that could have been used here that means obey. And the Apostle Paul does not write, let every person obey the governing authorities. He says to be subject to the governing authorities. You know, a king, we've heard of kings having subjects. We are to subject ourselves to governing authorities. But there are times where we should not obey. And we'll get into that. But even in that situation, we subject ourselves to the consequence of disobedience. Authority comes from God. All areas of life are, are under God's authority. And they're under some form of lesser authority under that. But I, use, I, I, I say this, authority is always lent. See, God is the author of this universe. He's the author of life. And so he has the authority over all of it. But you know, even within the Godhead, we have authority being lent or we have subjection under authority. During redemptive history, uh, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is subject to God the Father. And the Holy Spirit has subjected himself to God the Son. Even presently right now, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself has been given authority over a realm. And that's why when he says to Jesus in John 4, tempting him, saying, worship me and I will give you all these kingdoms, that's not a lie. 
He had the authority to do that. And, when, and, and he's only able to carry that out within control, and one day he will pay for it. He will pay for the use of it. But even we see this, this authority being lent throughout the Old Testament in human relationships. Husbands are over wives, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband. We see that parents are given the authority over their children. We're reminded in Ephesians 5, children, obey your parents. Why? In the Lord. For this is right. This is my design, he's saying. This is what I've, I've said. And this is the authority structure that I have set out. Colossians 3 adds, this pleases the Lord. And shepherds have authority over the church. As 1 Peter 5 says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And adds in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Shepherds of a church are our lent authority from the chief shepherd who is over his church total. So in this situation, we see a, a, a um, local church is one thing that defines, you know, a local church is in the fact that they have shepherding authority over them. People want to talk about, well, the church universal. Well, scripture talks about that. Christ is the chief shepherd of his church, but the local church is one that has a specific authority of shepherds over it, giving oversight under the chief shepherd. And we know that government, as in our passage, has been lent authority from God. As Jesus mentions in his conversation with Pilate when he's arrested and he says to him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Authority is sourced in God as the author of life and he simply lends that authority to lesser authorities. That is his structure. So if you think about it in this way, this room would like represent the universe, okay? And God is ever present in it. He is he is uh, ever knowledgeable of it. He his 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 laws and his ways apply to all of it. And living in a fear of the Lord is recognizing that no matter where I go in His universe, I live in that context of knowing He has power over it. He has authority over it, and He He has um, His He works in it. And, but, but yet, within that universe, God has given us a life, uh, expectations, guidelines, commands, a description of life with him that we are to live within. Okay, and that's living in relationship with God. And yet, beyond that even, he has given us, represented by our other umbrella here, you can tell I'm not superstitious, He's given us, imagine that not coming out from under that at all. He's given us authorities to live under, underneath his authority. Now, differing on cultures, okay, we live in a republic, but situations where they live in a dictatorship might be different than, this, than the civil government that we live within, but they still exist under God's authority. And so if we step out from underneath that authority, yet we're saying, well, I'm still obeying God. 
To say, I don't have to obey you, I'm going to obey God instead, or or to unnecessarily put one over the other, to step outside of that authority unnecessarily, God would be saying, what are you doing out here? You're supposed to be under the authority that I've given to this civil government. Okay, we'll come back to this. Try to make that thing. Okay, good. Disobedience to God's ordained authority is disobeying God, is what we're told here. Now, in the United States, we have a unique situation, even then instilled originally in our Declaration of Independence stating that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And and beneath that, in the spirit of that, our Constitution is written, and every member of Congress is required to take an oath of office, stating that they would support and defend the Constitution, and up to now is still saying, uh, so help me God. We have a democratic process for defining and correcting our policies according to our Constitution. And you should participate in that democratic process. You should participate in voting. You should participate in being a part of government, just as even as some of you here are on a local level. We should have more. But be careful. Understand. Within that context, I mean, understand that that the Roman Empire that the early Christians were living under, they were still in that situation where they were expected to live under that. And we have a temptation here in the United States in recognizing our inalienable rights to think that God also has given us the right to to disobey authority, and that's not what he's done. He expects to transform that relationship with authority, that, that his Holy Spirit would drive us to honor and to respect those governing authorities. So if you come to a place where you're making statements like, they're going to have to pry my gun out of my dead hand, be careful. Is that statement made out of a living as, as a sacrifice to God? Having presented yourself to God saying, Lord, I will live under the state however you command for me to. Or or in the same way, if you're making statements like, I I could never, ever support or respect a president who was a womanizer. Be careful. That may be revealing, and it should be revealing to you that that are are you willing, are are you living, presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice? And therefore, allowing him to transform your relationship to government of respect and honor when he is saying it's owed to them. Check yourself. It may be an issue of not living on the altar in worship to him. Let me say, secondly, we as believers should be the best citizens on on earth, and this means that we recognize the purpose God gave the state. It says, for rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Like, okay, so do you want to have no fear of the one who's in authority? Great. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, 
an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, interestingly here, when he talks about uh, um, the uh, a servant of God, when he's, talking about even the, when he's talking about the emperor, he's using the term diakonos, where we get the term deacon from. It's the term that's used earlier in chapter 12 about gifts of service. He's using uh, religious church terms, if you will, to describe um, these people in their governing authority over the people of Rome, and this is to be a paradigm shift for them. You mean this is what living, having presented myself to God as a living sacrifice means? That he transforms the way I think about this person? Yeah. So our servants, we call them, in city and county and state and federal government, they're public servants. And this flows out of this teaching. They're responsible to provide consequence for disobedience. When he says he does not bear the sword from the living, this isn't like wielding the sword. It's like wearing. He does not wear the sword for nothing. You see, magistrates in that time, and you see this in, in, um, uh, like in England and things like that, when somebody is appointed to a position, they, they might wear a sword in certain uh, environments. And, and it's not like they have that for personal defense or something. It, but that represents that they carry the right to bear, bring consequence on wrongdoers. Okay, as a filmmaker in Crawfordsville learned recently, the police officers do not carry guns for nothing. You know, if you, if you start pointing one, something at them that looks exactly like a gun, that, that gun might go off. Consequence for wrongdoing is a God-given... Uh, for wrongdoing. It's a God-given responsibility given to our government systems. And again, this is reinforcing the idea that in dealing with people that maybe they, they have declared war on us, you know, dealing with people that, that we feel like are, uh, that have made themselves enemies to us or we consider them enemies, this is teasing that out and saying God has given government to take vengeance on that situation. Do not take the law into your own hands. But uh, parents, we should recognize from this the importance of teaching our children what it is to live with consequence. In in many ways, we have a responsibility, this sounds kind of twisted, but we have a responsibility to create regret for our kids. Okay, when they do something that they shouldn't do, we should try to help them to learn that that is something that they will regret and that there are consequences for what they are, for what they've done. I've, I have counseled so many parents as a youth pastor um, that at, at no point were con- consequences held consistently and forcibly. And so what happened was that child graduated into the real world and they start breaking laws they start doing stupid things, and they just expect government authorities to buckle too, and they don't. But as parents, we have a responsibility to create consequence, to allow our children to understand what it is to live under authority. I remember an elder in, in Wisconsin that he was recounting to me a real sad situation. 
and he was an elder in the church that I served with there, and he was driving in his truck, and he had uh, a man in the church and his son in his truck with him, and, and I knew the man and the son, and the man was a pretty immature dad, and, and um, just kind of was always kind of trying to find an angle around things and stuff, and uh, the, the elder was driving, and he was speeding, and he gets pulled over. He said to me, he said, you know, I tried to model for this young man what it is to submit to authority. And when the police officer came to the window and said, do you know how fast you were going? He says, not exactly, but I know I was speeding. I, you know, and he's like, yep, you were. And, and he was just really respecting him and saying, you know, I, I recognize it and I, I, I understand that I need to take the consequence for it. And, and he went back and he brought him a ticket <clears throat> and the dad, after the police officer went back to his, uh, his patrol car and took off, his dad says, I can't believe that. Man, you were being so nice. You were kissing up like crazy. You know, he interpreted everything that he was doing as being like, okay, he's trying to get out of this ticket. But he just starts going on. He's like, that was ridiculous. You, you weren't going fast enough to get a ticket like that. You know what? I've got, and he literally says, you know what? I've got a friend down at the courthouse and we can get this taken care of for you. Just let me talk to him about it. And he says, no, that's all right. He says, I was in the wrong, and I'll pay the fine. So then the son joins in. You shouldn't have to do that. Just let my dad fix it for you. And he just started shaking his head as he was talking to me. He says, it really concerns me for that boy, the way that his dad is relating to authority. And it's something we should consider. We should be modeling, trusting God's design, especially when government is failing, especially when government is crooked. It says here, he is God's servant. He will have to explain himself to God. And, and I, I, it must be dreadful to think about someone being God's servant and not even knowing it. They will face judgment for their decisions. Richard Halverson, the former chaplain of the United States Senate, wrote that to be sure, he says, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state just as man, because of sin, has abused and misused every other institution in history, including the church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must be human government to maintain order until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy, and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. See, in a perfect world, uh, as he says, when there wasn't a sinful hearts, what is good in God's mind will be understood as being good in government's mind. And what is wrong in God's mind will be understood as being wrong in government's mind. But we don't live in a perfect world. And oftentimes what is considered good or what is considered wrong loses their definition according to what God has given it. And sometimes evil is called good and good is called evil. You know, for instance, in the Roman government, they were requiring their citizens to proclaim Jesus is, I'm sorry, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians believed, and, and rightfully so, only Jesus is Lord. And they could not 
publicly proclaimed Caesar as Lord. And they were considered then a subversive sect and were persecuted because of it. When is our biblical responsibility, when is it our biblical responsibility to disobey government? Now understand and check your heart here. This question is not when can I disobey government? The question is when is it our biblical responsibility to disobey government? When does living a transformed life on God's altar mean disobeying government? Because so far what we've seen in this passage, it means living in subjection to governing authorities. And I'll argue at least two times. One is when government calls something that God, government outlaws something that God has commanded. For instance, outlawing sharing of the gospel. We see this in Acts 5, when the ruling authorities of the Jewish nation bring in the apostles and they, after having imprisoned them and beaten them, and they tell them, you must not teach according to this name, Jesus And their response is, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. But we cannot help but to speak this name and to preach this gospel. When government outlaws something that God commands, like sharing the gospel, we will disobey. Secondly, it's when government is mandating that a Christian should do something immoral. You know, interestingly, in the book of Daniel, which I was reading yesterday, Throughout the book of Daniel, this statement comes up over and over again. The most high reigns over the kingdoms of men. The most high reigns over the kingdoms of men. Yet, again and again in the book of Daniel, we see a ruler of the kingdoms of men doing ungodly things and mandating immoral things and God's people saying, no, we cannot do that. Such as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are commanded to bow down to a graven image and their response under threat of being thrown in a fiery furnace, their response is, whether God will save us or not, we will not do what you are asking us to do and we will accept the consequence. Or Daniel, when King Darius makes a decree that for 30 days no one was allowed to pray to anyone except to the king and he simply went on praying to God. And he accepted the consequence, and God delivered him. So thinking back into these umbrellas, so this larger umbrella represents the life that God calls for us to live, and this smaller umbrella represents government, living in subjection under government. When it is that government says you must do things that are outside of immoral according to the life that God has called for you to live. On that situation, you must disobey. In that situation, we disobey government. In that area in which it falls outside of the life that God has called for us to live. And in that situation, even though you're in obedience to government, if it's outside of the, God, the life that God has called to live... God's response to you should be, what are you doing out there? Well, I'm obeying. You're not obeying me. That is what we are being taught here in this passage. Understand, they are emissaries. They are representatives. They are servants of God. And when they're calling for something that goes against my commands, 
Don't hear it as coming from me. So in a situation of, if we were to be called to restrict the gospel, the gospel involves understanding sin. The gospel involves recognizing the fact that we all are born into sin. We all uh, think and say and do things that cause us to fall short of the glory of God. And it's sin that was had to be paid for by the cross of Christ. It's sin that Jesus came to pay for in his death and his resurrection. If, if there was no sin, if there was no need of discussion of sin, then God killed his son just for kicks. But if the government should say, well, to talk about sin is hate speech, we will still talk about sin. We will till, still explain that sin separates man from God. Even if government were to outlaw something that God commands, like the gospel, we would still preach the gospel. Or if government were to mandate something immoral, like mandate that churches must perform homosexual marriages, we will disobey. We will take our tax-exempt status, take the building, it's not the church, toss me in prison, we will disobey. Students, they may come where where the requirement is, well, we want you to experience praying to to other gods, so we're going to have a prayer time to Allah. Or we want you to experience transcendental meditation. You, you, haven't, you can't knock it until you tried it. You must disobey. Because we are called to obey God first. And where civil authorities call us to do things that he calls us not to do, that is when we disobey. You see, to live laid on his altar still makes us a good citizen even if we're saying, no, I will not do that. Because a good citizen will also say, this is carrying us away from God. And we have to discern that, each one of us. And Jesus was the perfect example of this. He went against what was then that day considered to be blasphemy and said, I am the son of God. He went against and allowed his people to call him Lord, even though it put him in the crosshairs of the Roman government. And he was being a good citizen, evidenced in the fact that one of the men that crucified him was able to look up at him in the end and say, surely this was the Son of God. See, Jesus is a perfect example of what it means to live under government, but when it, when it comes time to obey God rather than man, it's what he did. And it benefited all those that were even carrying out the judgment on him. Lastly, Christians should be the best citizens on earth. And this means give what you owe to the state. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to, what, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I think this, these verses are probably some that get the least number of amens in all of church history. Now, 
Understand here, when he says they are ministers of God, he's using a liturgical term. He's using like a term almost to say, the, 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 almost to say Nero is a pastor of God. Not necessarily that term. But, but in his re, and this is to resonate, especially with those Jewish Christians, that under the law they were to pay 23% to the temple and to the Levitical priesthood for the carrying out of, of worship and, and for support of the Levites and things like that. And he's saying it's really no different here. He's still God's servant. He's God's minister. Understand, taxes in those days were building temples full of prostitutes. They were funding a coliseum with gladiators who destroyed each other and Christians fed to the lions. And yet it's written in Titus 3, remind them to be, in sub- to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. In other words, don't let your lack of submission to the authorities keep you from being ready for good works of the gospel. The gospel was more important. Even Peter, who was, who was murdered by Nero, as was Paul, writes this in 1 Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For the gospel's sake. It's to override any personal vendetta we have with our government. The Lord's sake. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, meaning sent by the emperor, sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Those foolish people that were saying, oh, you know, they are a subversive sect. They really don't, they don't have anything to do with the empire. They're not out for the empire's good. And he continues, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Wow. I heard once of a pastor who... um, confessed that he wrote, made his check out to the Infernal Revenue Service. And he was saying, I'm convicted by this because I've read these verses here and I'm like, that's not how I should be responding. That's not how I should act. And, you know, when you sit down with your taxes or with your accountant, and, and I'm sure Ed wouldn't ask this, but, you know, if they're like, well, you know, what do you want to write down there? Because I'm not really going to check. You know, write down whatever number. Keep these verses in mind. When you're tempted to inflate the numbers or deflate the numbers, however it might serve you, keep these ideas in mind. Living a transformed life with God means living a transformed relationship with the state. Do you live in a cat and mouse relationship with our government authorities? You know, there, there's, there's plenty of times when, when I'm convicted and I'm like, okay, I'm driving as fast as I can here as, without getting caught. You know, and, and it's kind of knee-jerk reaction. You come over that hill and you see the trooper on the interstate and you're like, whoa, slow down. Everybody slows down. You better slow down because everybody's going to slow down. You're going to rear in somebody. I, actually, I asked a police officer one time, what speed should people drive? He said, the speed that all the traffic is going. 
He said, if everybody's going 70 and the speed limit is 55, if you drive 55, you're a danger to everyone else. So it's dangerous, actually, to drive on 231 going 55 miles an hour, by the way. (laughs) No, I've been convicted at times when I'm like, should I pass this person? I'm like, well, maybe they're on their way to harvest. (laughs) (laughs) So this should penetrate our hearts. This should cause us to stop and ask, okay, Lord, this is how I'm thinking. I must just need to lay myself on the altar again. Being transformed means going beyond the minimum expected. Respect and honor. Whether you couldn't, couldn't stand what you felt like was a liberal agenda of President Obama or you, couldn't sta- or you can't stand the tweets of President Trump and you feel like he's mean-spirited toward Hispanics or, or the working class, we owe them respect and honor due to the fact that God gave us the institution that they represent. Thomas Gunderson was a man who was shot in the leg in the Las Vegas massacre. And when President Trump and his wife Malia came to uh, visit him in the hospital, he mustered all of his strength to get up and stand next to his bed and shake their hands. And he wrote on Facebook afterwards, says, I will never lie down when the president of this great country comes to shake my hand. There may be plenty of issues in this country, but I will always respect my country, my president, and my flag. Shot in the leg or not, I will stand to show my president the respect he deserves. My question to him is, would he would have done the same thing a year ago? He has to know that. You remember the story, the account in prior to his crucifixion and during his Passion Week when when things are coming down to bear on Jesus and he's coming at him. The Pharisees are coming at him. The Sadducees are coming at him. The Roman government's coming at him. And he comes and uh, a man comes to test him and ask him the question that they thought was going to catch him between a rock and a hard place. Going to catch him even either uh, being in disagreement with the Roman government or in disagreement with the Jewish people. And they asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, show me a coin. Whose image is on this coin? And the image on the coin was Caesar. And so his response was, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. And he could have asked this next question, whose image is on you? See, he was taking this to a higher level of our relationship with God, living in God's image And just as that coin having Caesar's image on it, it all belongs to Caesar, so send back to him what he's calling for. We have God's image on us, and it all belongs to him. Just as we've been told in Romans 12, we're to present all of ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice. It all belongs to him, so we should give to him whatever he calls for. And that's the idea. And what he calls for here, what he reminds us, is our responsibility to live as super citizens. Not just being afraid of of consequence, but out of conscience, out of love for the Lord, out of living a transformed life with him. Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you.